Welcome to Talking Bach, a podcast by Bach Academy Australia. My name is Madeline Easton and I am the Artistic Director of Bach Academy Australia. This podcast series will accompany each of our concert series throughout the year. Welcome to the third series of Talking Bach. This series of podcasts focuses on our last concert series of the year, titled Grazia in Grazia. This is all about thanksgiving. It's about giving thanks for the health we have and the people we have around us and the wonderful great art that comes out of very, very hard times. This series of podcasts is all based around our final concert of the year, titled Grazia in Grazia, which is Latin for in thanksgiving. We are presenting Monteverdi's great mass of thanksgiving, which he wrote in 1631 to celebrate the end of the terrible second wave of plague that was in Venice at that time. My guest is Dr. Norman Swan, who everybody will know from the ABC, presenting the ever popular health report and also CoronaCast. Dr. Swan is one of the first medically qualified journalists in Australia and is highly regarded by the medical and health professions. In this episode, he talks to me about all things to do with disease and how it's shaped our history, our lives, colonization itself, his relation to music, his upbringing with a father who was a music teacher, and helps give us some wonderful insights into how terrible times can also produce wonderful art. So, Dr. Norman Swan, thank you so much for joining me on Talking Bach. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. It's my pleasure, Madeline. Um, I have to say, it was absolutely brilliant having you on the telly most days for the last two years um, where we were sort of going through it all. Uh, you know, you weren't sort of tied to any politicians. So in a way, you were the most believable person out there for all of us. Well, it was you know, kind of you to say so. We, we didn't really think that at the time. We were just trying to provide a, a trusted source of information. We weren't competing with anybody. Um, and we just tried to call it as it was. Yeah, um, well, it was infinitely valuable to everybody. Um, yeah, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks for keeping us company throughout the last few years. And how are you feeling now, two years into it, two and a half years into it all? Two and a half years. Well, it'll almost be three years since the first person came down with COVID-19, yeah. which is probably November, December, probably November 2019. So it's a, a been a remarkable roller coaster. But it's not over, um, unfortunately. Um, plague lasted three, the second pandemic of plague, which is what people kind of call the um, Black Death, um, lasted for 300 years. Um, and um, this one's not going anywhere anytime fast. Yes, no, you're right. Um, I've been reading all day about all sorts of things like that. And uh, there was plague well into the 1800s, wasn't there? Well, um, so the second pandemic probably died out in the 17th century, 17th, 18th century. And then it came back. The third pandemic started in China, probably late 19th century, and then spread around this, the Pacific, came to Australia, um, went to the west coast of the United States. And actually, uh, luckily in Australia, it never um so there were plague outbreaks in Australia, in Melbourne, Sydney, maybe Brisbane, I can't remember. Um, but it never went into the wild animal population in Australia, whereas in America it did. So with this third pandemic, a plague went into 
coyotes, ground rodents, and so on in the United States. So, in fact, the, um, the United States has plague as an endemic disease. Um, and the worry is that it could break, you know, if you've got a, and it's focused particularly on the Western states. And the worry is that uh, you might get an earthquake along the San Andreas Fault associated with a mutation in the bug in the uh, in the in the animals in which they are living, and then it breaks out into the human population when there's a lot of chaos and medical systems are breaking down, and you could get an outbreak of pneumonic plague where quite a lot of people would die. Um, so it's not gone. Even that, even the Black Death hasn't gone. Gosh, isn't that incredible? Um, and I know it hasn't technically been proven. Do correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but these viruses, when they transfer from animals to humans, that's when we're really in trouble, isn't it? Uh, well, not always, but the um, pandemics almost always, if not always, almost always, would start in an animal and then make the jump to humans. And they do that all the time. Bugs uh, from animals to humans all the time but they're not always pandemic viruses yeah I mean, um but the, the reason that they become they are like they are you know that's the root is that when they've been in animals they pick up genes and genetic information which is alien to human immune systems we, we don't recognize it and therefore the bug can run riot yeah because we're not a monkey or a bat. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> so I don't know how many people out there have read about you, but uh, you have won a lot of awards in your life. You're one of the most qualified and lauded people out there, um, including the Medal of Australian Academy of Science and also Royal College of Ph Physicians in Glasgow made you a fellow. That's brilliant. That's really wonderful. No, it's nice. Yeah, it's the, the slightly different. The uh, medal was an honorary thing. The the degree in Glasgow was actually um, a postgraduate qualification that I actually passed. But then you, if you're there long enough, you get the fellowship. But it's nice. It's absolutely nice. Yeah. I've watched uh, just the first episode, but it was brilliant of your incredible four part series called Invisible Wars, made for SBS and Channel Four. Um, I was fascinated by what you said about the diseases that aren't diseases. That really struck a chord, actually. Yeah, we um, that was one of the things we explored in the series, which was partly about pandemics, but also about disease and civilization and how disease changes civilization can change history. Uh, and yeah, we we love putting labels on things and yeah. calling things. So in my first book, which came out you know, 80, no, a year or so ago, I talked about you know the, the risk of over-medicalizing mm. the normal. <clears throat> so, for example, um, insomnia is a good example of that, where um, people get obsessed with duration of sleep. They, if you're not getting eight hours sleep, you're going to die of dementia and you know that sort of thing. And it turns out there is an association between duration of sleep and problems, um, but it, it's not nothing to do, it's not got a lot to do with duration, and it's got a lot to do with, well, first of all, people who sleep nine or 10 hours a night have a higher risk of dying prematurely, but that's because they're older and sicker, and they're not usually sleeping for nine or 10 hours a night, they're in their bed hoping to go to sleep. 
And then people who sleep six hours or less a night or fewer a night, um, they also have poorer outcomes. But it turns out it's got nothing. That when you look really, when you took a deep, take a deep dive into the data, it's actually about sleep quality. If you have a good night's sleep and you wake and awake and refresh, you tend not to have a problem. But if you're sleeping six hours because it's an interrupted night's sleep and you feel lousy in the morning, you, know, you have trouble getting off to sleep or you wake up early in the morning and you're not getting enough sleep and that's your six hours, that's not good. But if you have six good hours sleep, it's fine. Yeah. So we, we tend to medicalize these, uh, these problems. And then I talk about in the book also about uh, this book called So You Think You Know What's Good For You. Um, I, I, talk, I talk about my, the two words I hate most. This is moving off-piste in terms of pandemics, but um, is well our wellness and resilience. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the reason I hate the word wellness, well, both of them, they kind of turn us into victims, is the whole wellness thing. If you believe the marketing, that if you're a woman – you know, you jump out of bed and you admire your thin thighs and um, you have a perfect body and pearly white teeth as you wash your teeth in the morning, full of energy. And, you know, if you're a man, you jump out of bed full of energy and you admire your washboard abdomen. And the reality is most of us wake up in the morning feeling utterly crap and we don't want to get up and uh, we're tired and, you know, feeling lousy. And somehow we're, we're told that that's, abnormal we should you know we should be waking up every morning with boundless energy which of course we don't and if you don't then this you must have a diagnosis now if every single morning of your life you wake up feeling crap and you don't want to do things that's something's wrong but life is just a roller coaster one day's good one day's bad and, and and so on and so forth and how would you ever know that you're well if you feel well all the time you know you only know that you're really feeling good most of the time we don't feel good that's so it. it's just that natural cycle of feeling normal so that, that that's way off being from what we're supposed to be talking about in terms of pandemics. <laughs> it doesn't matter it's still extremely important and i agree this whole idea of wellness it's setting yourself up for failure right from the beginning isn't it yeah, yeah. and resilience, resilience is the same you know the ability to bounce back from adversity it makes you think that there are resilient, strong people in the world and then there are weak losers in the world who don't bounce back after adversity. And that's actually not true. The resilience is, is a moment in time in your life. So you can have resilient times, resilient years in your life where you're feeling great, things are going well, something bad happens, you bounce back. And then the following year, you don't. And then when you analyse why you don't, it's because a relationship broke down, you lost your job, so the problems with your kids. That's financial problems, and one thing adds up over another, and there's only so much that you can deal with. And then the following year, when all that sorts itself out, you're back to bouncing back. So it's it's more a condition of time than of weak people and strong people. That makes a lot of sense. That's a much kinder way of looking at things as well, I think. Yeah, that is, is absolutely right. It's situational most of the time, resilience, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, we are here to talk about Venice in the 1600s and how musicians were affected by pandemics uh, and how they have been affected by pandemics. Um, but it seems that that poor Venetian Republic was plagued by wars for centuries before actually that second horrific wave. Um, I spent most of this afternoon reading about the history of that Venetian Republic, which was completely fascinating, and how the, the top of Italy at that point all around the Dolomites and around the Aegean and even into Crete and Turkey and Constantinople, 
the, the, the land was constantly changing hands between this ducal family and this, you know, sort of caliphate in the east. And then every five minutes they were starting another war with one another. <laughs> and then all of a sudden in Venice, um, they went to war with the Habsburgs, which brought the plague and game over, basically. And the city went into decline after that. Plague um, had an enormous impact. So uh, if you put plague in historical perspective, so what plague is, it's not a virus, it's a bacterium called Yersinia pestis. And throughout history, there have been three pandemics of plague. And um, the first one was the um, Justinian plague, seventh century AD thereabouts. The big one was the one we call the Black Death, which is what we're talking about now. Then there was a third one, which started in China, spread around the Pacific. But if we focus on this one, it used to be thought 1349 was the key time when it really broke out into Europe after a war in the Crimea, where the Mongols were laying siege to the port of Kaffa, and which had Genoese and Viennese, um, I think Venetians were there as well. And they took the plague from, they fled, and they took the plague on their ships back into Europe. And uh, Venetians and Genoese compete with um, each other for the invention of quarantine, which was a process of holding boats offshore. But they didn't know about that to begin with. And it spread into Europe from Genoa and probably Venice as well. Nobody is really very sure. Now, that's the, that's the story you hear. The reality about plague, when they've looked at the data and looked at the historical records, is that plague was prob had probably broken out from animals in Central Asia um, maybe 100 years before that, maybe even a little bit longer, and was, was really just sort of bubbling away and simmering and coming in. And like COVID-19, it comes in waves. It's not there all the time. It comes in waves. Now, we're used to that now with COVID-19. You know, the time that you and I are talking, we're down at a low ebb in terms of numbers of cases, but it'll come back and surge. Hope it, I, hope it, I hope I'm wrong, but that's what's happening in Europe right now, and it'll almost certainly happen here. Um, and that's what happened with plague. And then often what happens then is, and it happened with HIV, by the way. So HIV has been around for 100 years. It used to be thought that it started in the 80s or 70s or 90s, 70s, 1980s. But in fact, it's been around, we now know, in Central Africa probably for 100 years. And what happened then was it was also a spillover. It was a spillover from bushmeat, from monkeys and so on that had been caught and butchered. And the monkey virus, similar to HIV, mutated, jumped into humans and became HIV. But it didn't spread very well, widely because people didn't travel very much. There was a period of missionary activity and local sexual mores broke down. And because normally sex was contained with the young men within their families. Um, Christian missionaries didn't like that, told them not to do it, and that created a sex trade. And then you had decolonization, people spreading. So what I'm building up here is a story of multiple factors that create a pandemic. And then you, you know, at some point it breaks out, spreads to other parts of Africa, then spreads around the world at a time of uh, sexual liberation, um, acceptance of different sexual identities and, and what have you, and HIV and intravenous drug use, and then it spreads throughout the West. And um, and so with plague, it was a spillover from ground rodents in Central Asia. Then trade routes would 
spread it, mm -hmm. you know, the silk roads would take it in and it would come in surges, go away. And then it really flared and in, in the 14th century. So it's not a myth, the 1349 thing, but it was there beforehand coming in waves, smaller waves, and then it just really hit. And, um, and if you look at the impact, it's just hard to imagine here we are. Well, is it that hard? I suppose we've got COVID-19, but it's just hard. The, the, the impact was just enormous. There was no drugs. All they had was the same as all we had in March 2020, which is social distancing, um, you know, sh shutting your borders. Florence was the classic example where they would shut the walls of the city when a surge was on, stop people going in, stop people going out. Every plague in history has widened the fracture line between the advantaged communities and the disadvantaged communities. They would nail the poor in their homes to die of plague. Um, which is, now, if you might remember the photographs of people in Wuhan being nailed. I do. I was just about to say that. It totally, utterly broke my heart. I couldn't believe human beings would do that to each other in this day and age. But there we go. But it's what happened then. Yeah. But the... The shock to society was enormous, mm. um, which is an important background to the cultural change. So it was because there was such a high death rate, and the death rate was enormous, um, there was a shortage of labor. And so it was the end of serfdom. So, so essentially, the plague stopped serfdom and started the process, you know, started the economic revolution of wage labor. Um, people lost confidence in the church and the beginnings of the Reformation, distrust, um, there was um, prejudice, there were, um, you know, the Jews were blamed for, for it, um, there were pogroms, and there was a cultural renaissance as well because people started thinking differently about the world. They, they didn't feel they had to paint the way um, the church had accepted it for centuries. You could actually paint things as you saw. So paint, you, know, you started getting perspective into painting much more than you used to, much more than they had before. The, the Northern painters, the Northern European painters started having an influence that came back down into Italy with people at Caravaggio and when then went back up to North. You had these, the paint, and then you had a, a musical revolution as well. And, and it was because People felt they could break down, even though the core of, and this is your lane, not mine, but even though the core of musical composition were, was commissions by the church. Um, you know, on the side, Bach would, uh, you know, have sonatas and, 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 and what have you, which weren't religious, but I, you know, I think I'm, I'm going on weak territory with Bach, but pretty sure the big money came in with compositions from the church. Oh, yeah, because that was his job. And you're right. It was all about. No, sorry, that's not right. He wrote because he believed passionately in God. And at the bottom of each of his works, he wrote Soli Deo Gloria. Everything he wrote was to the glory of God. But that was also what he was paid for, of course. Yeah, but um, I love what you're saying about a new freedom of expression coming in in the Renaissance. And there's such a connection to the Reformation here with Martin Luther um, and his connection to Bach as well. It's yeah. sort of, oh, and... Um, and there was just that yeah. constant disruption. They, yeah. People lived with constant disruption. They, they, 
they they never knew when the next wave was going to come. Um, summer was repeatedly a bad time, and people dreaded summer. And um, and so you couldn't plan ahead. It, it was just a very hundreds of years, centuries of uncertainty and re-examination. And, and almost certainly the biological background, the biocultural background, created a fertile ground for all sorts of changes. Well, I can relate to that because, believe me, the last two years have been... Uh, um, so uncertain, but particularly for us musicians. I mean, every time we wanted to plan a concert, we would book a hall and book musicians and try and get an audience and then we'd be shut down again. And then, I mean, oh, it's like, I, you know, dealing with two years of that was more than enough. <laughs> yeah. But I can't imagine what it would have been like. Mind you, human beings are very adaptable, to use another buzzword. And if that's your norm, then that's your norm. And then you just get on with it and you make the best of that's it. That's right, you're just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But luckily we've got better technology than we hadn't had in the Middle Ages. That's true. But this Monteverdi mass we're doing, it's it was really quite something. Um, I don't know if you know about this particular event that happened. Um, but Claudio Monteverdi was tasked with writing this massive mass um in celebration for the end of the plague. And they had a huge uh, service in St. Mark's in Venice, and then the entire clergy and all the congregation marched over the canal by a boat bridge to the site of a new church where they laid the foundation stone of Santa Maria della Salute. That's the origin of Salute. Yes, so that, it is. One, a wonderful church on the point. That's it. Yeah, so Monteverdi was there. And that's where they laid the foundation stone, um, giving thanks for the end of the plague. Uh, and then they all marched back and then there was a lot more music. Isn't that reminiscent of now? We all think it's over. And they, exactly. and they would have thought that it's over too. It uh -huh. wasn't over. Oh, it no. Wasn't. The fascinating thing was I've been trying to find the music to this mass. Um, there's a wonderful recording of it on Spotify by the, the Taverner Consort, Andrew Parrott. And uh, I've really wanted to, to perform this piece, particularly now as we, we seem to be coming out of the worst of it or perhaps this wave of it. And uh, I did want to sort of musically recreate this idea of giving thanks. And uh, it's not just for the sort of hopefully the end of the worst of it, but it's also for what we have and what we can be grateful for, what we've learnt, you know, you know, regardless of what it is. And the music is is just ravishing. I mean, when you're talking about a renaissance and a new form of expression, it was Monteverdi who wrote the very first operas with, you know, Orfeo and Ulysses and the coronation of Popea, these deeply emotional, you know, um, very, very, very uh, romantic, if you like, uh, works that had never been heard before in Italy, you know, yeah. uh, but all with the background of huge, huge change. And then we decided to do this piece of Schutz, Heinrich Schutz, who you probably have never heard of before. But he was also in Venice at that time. And previous to this, he was in Dresden at the court there. Um, having a terrible time because of the 30 years war that was raging in Germany, you know, middle of the 1600s. Um, and he got caught up in the plague. He had to leave Dresden because it was totally ravaged by the plague. And then he made the fatal mistake of going to Venice in 1629. <laughs> got caught up with it again. <laughs> Inescapable. This, his music is, is, is absolutely, it's mind blowing. He writes 16 part polyphony. And it's so uplifting. I've noticed this a lot with composers, even particularly with Bach. 
Mozart as well and Schubert, when times got really tough, that's often when they wrote their most life-affirming music. I was reading John Elliott Gardner's book about Bach and he talked a lot about the prevalence of plague in the, you know, in when was Bach born? 1685 in Thuringia, in this tiny little town called Eisenach, which incidentally is the same place Martin Luther was imprisoned um, when he sparked the Reformation. What I find amazing is the fact that little tiny Johann Sebastian would have looked up the top of his hill and seen that fort every day of his childhood life. And Martin Luther had been there pinning his 90 things on the door 100 years before. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Anyway, uh, as, as many people know, he was orphaned by the age of nine years old and had to go and live with his older brother in a nearby town, Ordruf. And those little towns, Arnstadt, Ordruf, and the little ones around there were full of plague. And it is an absolute, complete miracle that he didn't get it himself. Uh, whilst he experienced plague, that was getting towards the end of plague in Europe. You know, by, by the end of the 18th century, it had largely gone. Nobody knows why. Nobody understands why. That is something I wanted to ask you. Why do plagues peter out? Sometimes they, they don't peter out. They just become something else. That doesn't happen with Black, the Black Death of Plague. Something happened. Um, people believe maybe the, the Black Rat population changed. Um, maybe there's a change to housing, how people lived. Um, maybe the, the the bug for some reason we don't understand just stopped mutating or mutated into something else which was milder and didn't mutate back again um mm. nobody really understands why plague went away some people would argue probably it might never have probably gone away but there's no plague in europe now and probably was you know it's not clear that plague is endemic in many parts of europe so i'm actually not sure about it. i certainly know that it's you know it's certainly endemic in places like India. India has plague cases all the time. Even America would have twenty or thirty. You know, in some years would have twenty or thirty cases of plague, um, but not hundreds, not thousands. It's just not entirely clear. It's it's the behaviour of the bug in animals. It's an animal disease, not a human disease, and it probably just came to terms with the animal population and how that had changed. And remember, the animal population was decimated as well. People knew the plague was coming because animals died. Right, so, yeah. So, so the animals would have mutated as well to some extent, or not mutated, but animals that would have been naturally resistant to plague. I mean, you and I probably have genes in our body which are partly resistant to plague because so many people died. The people who survived, like Bach, probably had genes which conferred some resistance to it. And so... You know, anyway, who knows? These are all theories. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've I've always wondered why plagues sort of go away like that. You're not um, alone. Yes. But um you talked about how viruses exploit the very thing that we need most, and that is the need to breathe. <laughs> but there's also something else we need, and that is, I think, to create art. It's something the human race feels a deep need to do. Um, to listen, to watch or partake of. We all seem to need art, whether that's music or visual art, whatever kind of art. Um, and have you got any observations on how the human race deals with pandemics in terms of what they seem to turn to? 
I, I, look, I think it's different for different pandemics. Mm. And I don't, th- I don't think there's one rule for everything. So, for example, look, there's one rule for pandemic. There is one rule for pandemics, and that is they always hit the poor worse than the rich. There are almost no equal opportunity pandemics. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. Sexually transmissible diseases are probably the exception, but even they are one of the poorest. So syphilis, for example, um, the first known outbreak of syphilis was in the, at the siege of Naples in the late 15th century. Probably brought back, probably brought back by, it used to be thought of as a myth, but people are thinking it's probably real, by Columbus from his first voyage because it's a new world disease. And when they got back to Spain, and it just shows you the conjunction of circumstances that create pandemics. When they got back to Spain, they, they, there was no second voyage on. The sailors needed work, you know, poverty. And they found work as, and they were carrying syphilis, they found work as mercenaries at the siege of Naples, where the French were laying siege mm-hmm. to Naples. And that was the first documented outbreak of syphilis. And it was a horrible outbreak. And um, the Italians called it the French pox and the French called it the Italian disease. And of course, we've had it ever since. Um, and of course, syphilis was a scourge and did affect the rich as well as the poor, but it affected the poor worse. Yeah, gosh. That, so, right, so in terms right. of um, what, how we, we cope, mm-hmm. people <clears throat> can only cope with pandemics for so long. <clears throat> And yeah. it was like that in 1918 with the flu pandemic. Is the worst year of the flu pandemic was 1920. Because people just got sick of wearing masks and sick of isolating. And they had to break out. And then, you know, particularly with plague, where it was just so ghastly, there was death everywhere. You needed, you know, Eau de Cologne reputedly was a creation of the plague to create a scent where you didn't smell the stench of the dead bodies. Um, I mean, it was just truly ghastly, carts going through the streets, picking up dead bodies. Um, it, it was devastating and so commonplace that not many people wrote about it, actually. And, and interestingly, not many people have written about COVID-19. If we, if we look back in this period of two or three years, there isn't really a COVID-19 literature. Because nobody wanted, nobody, I thought writing a book on COVID-19, I thought, nobody's going to read it. Nobody wants to read it. <laughs> and um, and so, I, you know, there were, you know, Thucydides wrote a description of a plague at the, in the Athenian, uh, the siege of Athens. But it wasn't plague. It was another disease altogether. But he wrote a detailed description of that. Um, it's more that people search, I suspect, for beauty and escape. Um, what did we search for? We sat down and watched Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I've listened to Bach. It might Good. surprise you. <laughs> much, more, much better for you than watching Netflix. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the one thing that actually got me through those horrible, horrible, long, very isolating months. Do you play any instruments? My father was a music teacher. You're kidding me? No. Wow. So it's in your family. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in a medical family. My father was um, a music teacher. He taught woodwind. Did he? And um, he ran away from home 
um, in the, I think, 1940, and joined a dance band and played in dance bands during the war. Gosh. And then um, came back to Glasgow and he he had his own band and uh, my house was full of, uh, I never saw my father because he was in the lounge always either practicing or choosing his reads for the gig that night. Um, this process, I don't know what it's like now, I mean, well, the read technology's got better, but he would he would spend hours just choosing the right reads for the evening. It's still the same. I mean, you talk to any oboist or bassoonist or clarinet players have a slightly easier time because you can buy boxes of them and saxophonists, everybody else constantly there chipping away, whittling their wheat reads. And yeah. yet, no, no, nothing's changed there. But I'm a bit, you know, like the, the story of the... Um, doctor's child gets the worst medical care so the music teacher's child gets the worst musical education so i i dabbled um so i i, I probably dabbled most with the flute but I, you know at times uh, you know I, I can play a little bit of oboe a little bit of clarinet a little bit of saxophone and a little bit more of the flute but it's embarrassing how bad i am embarrassing and i'm not being, that's not false modesty i really am bad at it I, in fact uh, so the ABC did a sort of Christmas special in the first year of the pandemic, and I made the mistake of telling the producer that I you know, played a little bit of flute. So she got me to play Silent Night, probably the simplest bloody tune you could play on any. <laughs> and I, and then what I didn't realise that the F key was leaking, and so basically the the, the flute was stuffed. So every time I had to play F natural, it just went all over the place. So it was just a truly embarrassing moment on national television. <laughs> don't wait, don't wait. You and, know. And, then I got, and then I got an email from a, somebody saying, oh, would you like me, you're a complete stranger, would you like me to repair your flute for you? And you were <laughs> like, no, that means I have to practice. <laughs> no, I, I did. Uh, he, I got it. I got it. I got it um, reconditioned. Oh. Well, we 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 can we can call you the Ron Burgundy of the ABC now. Hardly. <laughs> that's great, but I can relate to you with having a father who was a music teacher because that's what my dad did as well. Um, and I never saw him either because he was constantly in his studio composing or arranging or out doing gigs everywhere. And uh, but um, yeah, I had the opposite experience. I was locked in a practice room till I was about fourteen, fifteen. <laughs> um, but it turned out to be what I loved and what I wanted to do with my life. So it was actually the right thing. So I'm going to quote you again <laughs> from what I saw in your video, which was understanding where diseases come from, this intricate relationship between our genes, the environment, our past, and even the way we think of ourselves helps us gain control over our well-being. But that's not a lesson that is easily learned because since the Stone Age, it's been disease that has the power to change the course of history and that's a very powerful statement. Yep. It's a very powerful statement. It changed the shape of colonization. The reason the West Indies are black is that slavery brought, basically imported a West African disease environment into the Caribbean. And Anglo-Saxons, Caucasians, we had our own diseases like smallpox, measles, chickenpox, those sorts of things. And we had 
an immune system that was used to those probably, you know, partly because of survival, but also because we've grown up with them and we survived them. And therefore, when we colonized, we spread those diseases and we survived. So one of the, it wasn't just guns and bullets and ships that was that were the success stories of colonization. Um, it was West, it was West European diseases, essentially, and taking a European immune system into a vulnerable population, particularly in the New World. But we were never very successful at colonizing in, a, in the long term, particularly Africa. And part of that reason is biological. And that we had did not have any natural immunity or defenses against malaria, for example, whereas uh, African indigenous African populations do. In fact, indigenous Mediterranean populations do. They have blood diseases, which are blood. Their blood diseases as a side effect of because they, of the protection they confer against malaria. Um, you're more resistant to malaria. But anyway. Um, they, they imported essentially they, so that slavery was such an appalling um, period in human existence. The millions of um, Africans that they moved from Africa to the New World imported a disease environment to that world. And the European overseers died. They couldn't survive it. I mean, so the, the, the white population, places like Jamaica, Trinidad, other places, didn't survive. I mean, they were um, essentially the uh, because of the biological environment in which people found themselves. Um, so the shape of colonization was partly framed by our relationship with microorganisms. And then the, the, the British found a secret weapon against malaria, which was uh, from the bark of the chinchona tree, Quinine. Of course. And um, they took those trees back to Kew Gardens and cultivated them. And that was essentially a military secret. And they supplied British forces with quinine. And they were, it's not a brilliant drug, but it does provide some protection against malaria. And that's another reason why British colonization was a bit more successful than other countries' colonizations. Although, you know, the Belgians. Um, and others were pretty, you know, the Portuguese and the Spanish were pretty effective themselves. That it really does change the course of history, not always for the worse, but sometimes for the better, when it's these great works of art that come out of it. So any words of advice for us going into the Christmas period? What should we be doing? Well, I think that um, we should keep our windows open. We mm -hmm. should be really careful of ventilated spaces. I think in concert halls, they should keep the doors open. Yes. Um, so that you've got circulation of the air. It's, it's remarkable the difference. If you're in a large, even a large, well-ventilated room, um, and I, I do this when I'm giving talks, I say, just open the doors and feel the difference. And when you open the doors, you just get this flux of fresh air in. So it just makes them safer places. And if you're worried about yourself, wear an N95, a well-fitting N95 mask so you're protecting yourself. Um, and then don't, if you've got cold symptoms, you've got symptoms, don't mix, you know, stay home. And again, um, make sure your immunizations are up to date. 28% um, of Australians who are eligible have still not had their third dose of vaccine. And that means that their immunity is declining quite significantly. It's probably a year since many of them have had 
the second dose, so they've got no protection against infection and declining protection against severe disease, where the third dose will bring you back up. And then the fourth dose, maybe three months after that. So get vaccinated so that you're prepared for the next time it comes along. I heard you mention before that summer can be quite a dangerous time, can't it? It's not yet a seasonal virus, uh-huh. as far as we can see. So the BA5 surge, July, August, uh, June, July, August, that was a global surge. It wasn't just in Australia, you know, in, in our winter. Yeah, that's right. Um, so summer is a religious time. It's, it's, it's not necessarily, but you know, Christmas and so on, we do have a lot of in, indoor gatherings. And I just think we should change our behaviour and do think, do more stuff outside. Sure. Well, if it ever stops raining, we will. <laughs> That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. I know. Oh, well, I know what I'm going to do, and I'm going to read your book. I'm going to read your book called So You Want to Live Longer. Now, younger Longer. So You Want to Live Younger Longer. That's, That's right. You want That's, to my live... second. That's my second book, yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about this book. Well, it's nobody wants to live to old age, miserable, decrepit, dependent on others. We all want to live as long as possible. Um, but in good shape, so we're not dependent on others. So how do you actually do that? You know, in other words, your chassis might have been around for a while, but how do you have fewer miles on the clock? And um, and how do you get fewer miles on the clock? Well, it's, it's not by driving your car to the shops twice a week, but it's, um, you know, there's lots of things that you can do and lots of things that are effective and lots of things that are already working because today's 80-year-old, is a bit like a fifty, a sixty-year-old fifty years ago. I mean, so we are, we are, our bodies are younger, physically younger than they were. Not that's not the total story. I mean, we we're not smoking. We're getting our blood pressure treated, our cholesterol treated. Um, so there are all sorts of things that we're doing, but we're also getting. We're, we're also in a world where we have an education system, imperfect though it is. And the longer you go on in education, the longer you live. It's as simple as that because you've got more choices in your life. You're, you're more, more likely to live in a suburb where you're not next to diesel trucks smoking, you're breathing in air particulates, which are pro-aging. So, so what I do in the book is lay out what the evidence is, what you can do for yourself, what governments can do, um, how literally how to stay young for as long as possible. I, I um, completely agree with everything you're saying, and that's what I'll be doing over the Christmas period. <laughs> so one of the things that you do yourself to maintain some agency over your life is play your music gives you you know centers you and one of the things i say in the book which is true and we tend to forget it at our peril is that the brain runs everything and if our brain is in good shape and our brain monitors the environment and if the environment's not great, we, our relationships are poor, we're in a lousy job, we're feeling oppressed, the brain alerts the rest of the body to that. And that alert to the rest of the body speeds up aging. And normally those alerts, we've only evolved to cope with those alerts for a few minutes at a time, maybe a few hours at a time, but not for years at a time and months at a time. So you've found music as the way that you recenter yourself and you probably don't think of it as getting your brain in order and the messages going to the rest of your body. But when you sit down and play your favorite piece of music, it's actually extending your life. Why do artists live a long time? I believe it's because their art, I mean, 
allows them, allows their brains, if you like, to feel less stress and more in tune with the world around them and more at peace. That's really interesting. I would add to that also that it gives us meaning, real genuine meaning in our lives. It's not superficial. It's, 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 uh, it's something of real worth to the human race. And uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of things to distract us out there, life, you know, flash in the pan, this little videos of this TikTok, Instagram, whatever. But, you know, for me, it's, it's the great art. It's the fantastic literature. It's the wonderful pieces of music. It's going to an art gallery and seeing the Rembrandts on the wall. That's what life is about. That's what will get me to old age with a smile on my face. Hopefully. It will. Oh, look, thank you so much for, for coming on this podcast. It's been brilliant to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that chat just as much as I did. Now, to find out more about Bach Academy Australia, make sure you visit our website, which is www.bachacademyaustralia.com.au. Make sure you spell Academy the German way as well, spelt A-K-A-D-E-M-I-E, staying true to our German roots, of course. On our website, you can find out the details of all our upcoming performances near you, and you can subscribe to our e-newsletter. Also, you can find Bach Academy Australia on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. But make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.